I'm a businessman who's trying to make a dollar. My business here, I do a lot of patching. You, you do what? A lot of patching. Patching, right? So na 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 yeah yeah. No 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 no. So na 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 yeah yeah yeah. Na 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 boy boy boy. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Blueberry. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Tuesday, June 29th. That was someone in Jamaica saying something I couldn't quite understand. That was uh, Wayne Dezone. And we're going to hear more from him later. He was uh, talking about a tire shop that he runs in Jamaica where they fix punctures. Today on the podcast, how governments steal money from the poor without even knowing it. We have a case history from Jamaica. But first, our Planet Money indicator. Hello, Jacob Goldstein. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. Today's indicator, 0.8%. That's no good. I could do 0.9. I can't do 0.8. I'm not going to give you 0.9, but I will give you context like this. The Case-Shiller Index of housing prices rose 0.8% in April. It's the first monthly rise in seven months. So does that mean the housing downturn we've been talking about on the podcast for two years now (laughs) is over? No, 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 it doesn't. What happened was April was the last month of the home buyer tax credit. Right. That's where the federal government was literally paying slash bribing people to buy houses. Literally paying people to buy houses. So there's this deadline at the end of April, and that probably drove up prices because everybody was rushing to get in before the deadline. Right. And so that all happened in April. What about May? Do we have any data on May? So we don't have Case Shiller for May yet, but some of the early uh, indicators we do have from May suggests that it wasn't so good. Sales of newly built homes we talked about recently on the podcast, that hit a record low in May. You know, Jacob, there was that listener who wrote in and said, could you try to make the indicators less uh, gloomy all the time? Right. So let me just close with this. The Case-Shiller Index of Housing Prices rose 0.8% in April. (laughs) Excellent. Can we just review the overall shape of the Case-Shiller Index? So in 2000, it starts to go up and up and up and up. That's the housing bubble then, 2007, 2008, 2009. It crashes. And then, like a year ago, it started to go up a bit. Now it's fallen off a little bit. I mean, what's really interesting when you talk about this long arc, right? So Case-Shiller actually takes January of 2000 and makes that sort of the norm. 100 in the Case-Shiller Index is the median home price in January of 2000. And now we're at like 144-ish. I don't have the actual number in front of me, but that's about it. So what that means is home prices now are 44% higher than they were in January of 2000, right? So what we saw is they basically doubled. During the housing boom, Case-Shiller was up above 200. So you had home prices go through the roof, right? And then they fell like 25%, you know, in the bust, and like housing prices fall 25%. And it's like, oh, my God, the world's going to end. Oh, my God, house prices have to go up. But if you look at a longer arc, they're actually way up. That's the problem with the bubble. You believe it when it's happening. <laughs> well, as always, Jacob, thank you for your trenchant analysis. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. All right. So, Dave. Yep. Let's move on with this podcast, shall we? Please. As you know, I was in Jamaica and Barbados doing a bunch of reporting for the This American Life story I recently put together, as well as podcasts and stories on NPR that we've been doing. Today's podcast is the last installment of what I think of as the Jamaica series. It's like the season finale. Yes, exactly. And I saved this one for last because for me, what we're talking about today, this is the thing that I think about most when I think about the trip to Jamaica. It's the thing that stays with me. So we're going to be going, you and I and our listeners, to two different spots in Jamaica. All right. I've never been to Jamaica. Are we going to go to the beach? No, we're not going to the beach. <laughs> we're not going where the tourists go. In fact, we're going to a, a place that the tourists um, try to stay away from. 
Okay, where are we? Okay, we are in a place called Riverton City. It's one of the largest slums in Kingston. Thousands of people live here in these makeshift shacks of corrugated tin. It's dirt floors, no sewage, no electricity. It's built on top of a swamp at the edge of a huge garbage dump. So for the people who live here, um, big problem is mosquitoes. We have, we have a lot of mosquitoes around here giving us trouble. Bite up the kids, them. Mm-hmm. Biting up, you know, sometimes we're miserable by the biting of the mosquito, but that's the way in Riverton, you know? So this is a guy named Mervin, and he works at a tire shop that we stopped at. And um, here's the scene. Picture this. Ready, Dave? So there's this busy commercial strip. It's this huge main artery into and out of Kingston. And then you've got this vast slum to one side of it, Riverton. And right there on the boundary are all these little businesses that are set up right on the edge of, of Riverton, right next to the road. And they're really these threadbare little things, like scrap wood with like signs painted on them, haircut, fruit. And this guy, Mervin, he works at a place that repairs flat tires. It's like a tire shop. And I was interested in how the business works, and so I asked to talk to the owner, a guy named Wayne DeSoni. Can, can I ask you about... about so you, you run this business, right? You run uh, yeah, I run this business, but I have, I have fruit in the sun. What? what did he say? <laughs> exactly. Wayne's a little hard to understand. He said, yeah, I run this business, but I'm out in the sun. And what he's talking about is his business, it's all like built by hand. It's sort of like if you were like on a castaway island, it's how you would build something. It's built out of scrap materials that are sort of leaned up and nailed together. And there's not really a roof. It's just sort of like plastic sheeting and corrugated iron sort of laid on top of it. So are you picturing it in your mind? Yeah, yeah. And his voice actually makes sense now. Right, exactly. So despite that, like, he's working in sort of a lean-to shack that's built by hand with a dirt floor, he took me on a tour of his workshop, the tire workshop, and it's really impressive because it's got all these machines in it. I don't have a proper compressor. Uh-huh. But I, this I, is a compressor. I built this one. You built it? Yeah, I built this. And it's like, it's a machine, it's a, it's yeah. a compressor, it, fills, yeah. it uh, yeah. pumps up tires. Yeah. So there was a bunch of machines like this that Wayne had built by hand out of spare parts. And I want you to understand, these aren't like spare parts that are from other types of tire fixing machines. These are spare parts from totally different pieces of metal and types of machines. Like, for example, he had this machine, you know what a vulcanizer is? Um, gives you long pointy ears? <laughs> no. Good guess, though. No, it's a it's a machine that you know you use to retread tires. Oh, like vulcanized rubber. Yeah, exactly. And so he has this vulcanizer that he built himself out of car parts. The American um, Lincoln vehicle. I have to add to it. Oh, so that's like a strut from a from a truck here. I mean, it is. I start with this. Uh huh. I know it's 2010. Is he saying he made the vulcanizer out of spare parts from a car? He is indeed. And he said, in the 80s, I built it, and I'm using it even now in 2010. Not only did he build this machine out of spare car parts, but it's actually incredibly reliable. He's been using it for 30 years, the same one. I wonder if you could make a car out of an old vulcanizer. <laughs> I don't, I don't, if anybody could, it'd be Wayne. Um, and the thing about Wayne is he's apparently known as the best tire man around. There's actually an army base down the road, and he says the Jamaican army regularly comes to his shop and gets their tire work done. So if this guy could afford a TV advertisement, it would be something like official tire repair shop for the Jamaican Defense Force. <laughs> exactly. But instead, he's working outside in the sun without a shirt on a dirt floor. So normally when you look at a situation like this, you think, like, you know, here's the situation with a guy like this and a whole community of people living on a swamp, getting bitten by mosquitoes. They don't have electricity or sewage. The government of Jamaica should do something, should provide electricity and housing for these people. But the government of Jamaica can't really do anything. Why not? Well, it doesn't have any money either. It doesn't have any money? No, it doesn't. Hang on, well, hang on a second. Hang on. Jamaica. 
What are you, are you Googling? What are you Googling? Yeah, Jamaica budget. Wait, <laughs> budget travel cars. Hang on a second. Jamaica, wait, Jamaica GDP. All right, $14.6 billion, and it takes in some fraction of that. Yeah, the but- The government's got money. It, well, okay, but now look at uh, look up Jamaican debt. Mm. I had to go to that CIA website. Oh, debt is over 100% of GDP. Okay. <laughs> right. It owes so much money. Something like 50% of all the money the Jamaican government brings in, it needs to spend paying interest on money it's borrowed in the past. So 50% of the money- is basically gone, just paying interest payments. So in a situation like that, the government is not going to be able to help a lot of people in Riverton. And I guess my point is, what I realized when I was in Riverton is sort of, so the government's strapped for cash, there's all these people who are struggling, and there's not really any hope for them except through the free market, I guess. Your tire guy's problem actually does seem like a free market problem, right? Because uh, if he's the best tire guy in Jamaica, he should be like branching out, taking out those advertisements. He should be, you know, starting new businesses. He should be upgrading his vulcanizer. Right. I mean, he has to take the tires off a rim by hand using a razor blade. And there's machines that do it in like, you know, a fraction of the time. And if he could do that, he would be much more productive. And in the States, a guy like that could get a loan and do that stuff, could upgrade his machines, build an actual building to work in. But Wayne can't get a loan. And, you know, you hear people in America say everything I got, I got through my own hard work. Yeah, I got through my own hard work. And a big loan for the bank to start up money. <laughs> exactly. They often leave the loan part out. Most businesses do get loans from somebody. They have access to capital. But Wayne, when he says, I did this all myself, it is truer than I've ever heard it from anybody else. He literally made everything himself. And he's never gotten a loan or help of any kind, he told me. And I'm here, need some help with that, some funds now to get things up to you. That nobody you, need some, you need a loan, basically. Yeah, I know, and I help myself up. And, and what you're saying is if you, if you could get a little bit more capital, you could, you could get a new machine. Yeah, if I get help, if I get, if I get help, I, I can show on. Because I'm here, but I'm here helping myself. I need some help, you know. You know, the more I hear of him, I feel like I am starting to understand it. Right. He says, I'm here helping myself. Did you get that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And this is a point we've made on the podcast a lot. There's a lot of skill and entrepreneurial talent in poor areas, but it just doesn't get harnessed. That's true. I was in India. It's true, obviously, from our trips to Haiti. You know, in these poor countries, you have a lot of people just sort of spinning their wheels. They're underutilized. And what you really want, you know, is to put them to work, to have people like Wayne be able to build their businesses to become little economic engines and help the whole economy grow. Right. And when I talked to these guys at the tire shop, that's a point that they made themselves. Like, here's Mervyn, who, remember, works with Wayne in the tire shop. We were very skillful. Mm-hmm. Talent, we go out there and say, we have it, but they don't recognize us so much. Right, you have the talent, but they don't yeah, recognize Yeah, for them to come to the ghetto uh-huh. and see who we are and reason with us. So it's... Not entirely clear who he's talking about when he says them, but I feel like the point is clear. You know, like we have talent and we just we want to be able to use it. And this situation, you multiply it hundreds or thousands of times, and that is sort of a portrait of Jamaican poverty and poverty all over the world. And it raises this question, why isn't anyone lending to Wayne? Well, I happened to be on my trip to Jamaica with an actual economist. It was sort of like field reporting with an expert next to you. He was standing next to you in the tire shop? He was standing next to me in the tire shop, and we were on the trip together. His name is Peter Henry. He was born in Jamaica, but he moved to the States when he was nine, and now he's the dean of the Stern School of Business at New York University. And after we went into the tire shop, we got back on our way. We were heading to the countryside, and we talked about the situation in Riverton. And he says nobody loans money to Wayne, probably because his business is entirely informal. 
it's entirely off the grid. Wayne probably has no title to the land. He's probably not paying taxes. His business isn't registered anywhere. And so even though he's this incredibly skilled, self-sufficient guy, you know, with an informal contract with the National Army, for crying out loud, if a bank were to look at him, all they'd see is a shirtless guy in the ghetto with nothing to his name. So the first step, says Peter Henry, the economist, is to somehow get Wayne officially registered, get his business registered as, as a business. So that if you actually go to a small lender to get a loan, there's information about you in the system. Are there, are there lenders out there who, who would want to loan that guy money? Like, I mean, that's, that's, presupposed, that's the leap that seems like, so, so is there a small lender in Jamaica who would want to make a loan, a loan to a guy in Riverton who, who's working in a, in, you know, in a tin roof tire shop, you know? I, I suspect there probably is money to be made. I mean, there are, part, there, there are parts of the world where money is being made by lending to, to really small people, uh, small businesses. The issue is how do you create a system where there's a chance for the, for the capital market basically to find uh, somebody like that? And so I'm articulating, I think, essentially to some extent what it is they were saying, that people don't care about us, people don't people don't come and reason with us was, 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 was the term that he used. Um, he wouldn't phrase it the way I'm phrasing it, but, he just, but, they just, but there's just a sense that there's talent here and we're not being utilized. And if you're f- effectively invisible, nobody's going to find you. And he's effectively invisible. He's effectively invisible. He's effectively invisible. Alex, so I get that he's invisible and therefore he's hard to find. But that, to me, if there are people out there who want to loan money, that's their job is to find them. They should be setting up a small bank. They should be, you know, he's, he looks like a good investment, right? He's a really good tire repair guy. Right. And he's like made it work in really, really difficult circumstances, right? So so you'd think, yeah, maybe somebody would want to loan him money. And the problem is there's another problem that is stopping private money from getting to people like Wayne DeSony. And to understand this problem, it's time for our second stop. All right. Ready to go? Yep. All right. Here we are. (laughs) I can't tell what that is. (laughs) You don't know what that is? It's a helicopter. Haven't you ever been at a private heliport before? (laughs) No, but in the movies, they go... (laughs) I know. You can't believe everything you see in the movies, Dave. So I recorded that at a helipad at the top of one of the largest buildings in Kingston, the south tower of the largest bank in Jamaica, NCB Bank. I was there to meet the bank's owner, this guy. My name is Michael Leachin, and uh, I'm an investor. We have a private equity fund that invests primarily in uh, the Caribbean. So Michael Leachin is uh, one of the richest people in the world. He's a billionaire. And he actually, the helicopter, he'd flown in on that helicopter just to do the interview with me and Peter. Actually, after we were done, uh, he got back in and flew away. And he's sort of a character. Like, he's this really buff guy. He's apparently a fitness nut. He's from Jamaica, but he emigrated to Canada to go to college, and he stuck around there. He was actually a bouncer for a while after college before he got into financial services and, and made his fortune. And so very broadly... Wayne, the tire guy in the ghetto, he needs money and is looking for people to loan it to him. Michael Lee Chin has lots of money, and the way he makes more of it is finding people to loan it to. So if this were a movie, we'd have a setup for a very happy ending here. <laughs> exactly. Wherein the rich guy lends money to the small guy, and we have better helicopter sounds. Unfortunately, this is not a movie. This is a podcast. Uh <laughs> <laughs> And we're stuck with the sound effects that we have and with the reality, (laughs) which is that Michael's bank does not loan 
money to people like Wayne. And Michael says the reason is that up until very recently, even if Wayne was findable, his bank wouldn't have lent him money. Why? I mean, I don't get it, right? Jamaica's like this small island population, what, 3 million people. You know, this guy owns the biggest bank there, right? Yeah. And he's got a bunch of Jamaican money sitting around that can only be loaned to people who want to do things in Jamaica. And he's got a really good tire guy. Right, who could grow his business. I know, it doesn't seem... Well, the problem is they're loaning to someone else. The Jamaican government. Oh, who we heard from is borrowing so much. Yes, exactly. Remember, so we were talking about how the Jamaican government is borrowing a lot of money. They're constantly having to refinance the debt they're borrowing. So in other words, they're constantly borrowing more money to pay off the old money that they owe. And it's a constant cycle, right? They're borrowing, borrowing, borrowing all the time. And who do they borrow the money from? Michael's Bank. And all the other banks in Jamaica at really high interest rates. So, hey, Dave, you want to do it like a patented Planet Money mini uh, radio drama? Yeah, can I be, uh, who can I be? Why don't you be the Jamaican treasury? All right. And I am going to be a banker at Michael Leachin's bank. All right. All right, so. I need to borrow money. Well, it just so happens <laughs> that I have a million dollars sitting right here and I need to lend it to someone and charge them interest. That's how I make my money. And so you say you want to borrow some money? Yeah, a million dollars. Yeah, that'd be great. Hmm. Because my other option is to scour Jamaica looking for hardworking entrepreneurial types like Wayne who need a loan, try to decide whether to lend them that money. And then, of course, they're going to need it in like $100,000 installments. So I could do all that or I could just loan it all to you right now and make 19%. 19% really? Hey, man, you owe a lot of money. Uh, I guess I don't really have a choice. All right. Done. I'm hitting the golf course. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> so this, Alex, sometimes you read about the problems of government crowding out private investment. This is an example of that. If the government needs to borrow money and they are borrowing lots of money from banks like you. Exactly. That means there's not so much money left over for you to do the other kind of lending that you need to help the economy grow. So the government is sort of sucking up the money that otherwise would be going to the people. Exactly. And so in Michael Lee Chin's words, remember, he, he owns the bank. This fact that the government is there wanting to borrow all this money, it makes bankers in his bank complacent. Complacency, too much complacent. It was easy not to be, uh, not to be creative. So if you're, if, if you're a bank, why would, you, why would you lend to anybody else? Why would you find entrepreneurs? Why would you go out and seek other investments if you, if you can just make your money buying government debt and making your spread. Is that, do I have that right? You have it perfectly right. It was easier to, you could make more money off the living off government, uh, uh, trading government paper. So Alex, this is where we get back to your uh, idea. You laid out at the beginning that the government is stealing money from the poor people without realizing it. Right. I mean, stealing is probably putting it strongly. And actually, Peter Henry, the economist on the This American Life story, he said something that I think is really interesting, especially with regard to Jamaica, which is that, you know, the leaders of Jamaica have been pretty good by global standards. They haven't been thieves. They haven't been autocrats. They haven't been dictators. They have actually had the interests of their country at heart, and they just haven't been able to help because they've gotten in too much debt. Well, you can see how you kind of get in this debt trap, right? Maybe you, you borrow some money so that you can build roads or schools or whatever, but then you're carrying a bunch of debt and then some big chunk of the tax money you take in has to go to paying off the debt and it gets very hard to pay off your credit card, you know? Exactly. And just like if you have a lot of credit card debt, if you can try to figure out a way to get the interest on that credit card debt lower, it will help you pay it off. That is exactly what Jamaica has recently done. 
there's something called the JDX. When I was down there, everybody was talking about the JDX, the JDX, and I didn't know what it was. And finally, I figured out it's the Jamaican Debt Exchange. An exchange doesn't mean like a stock exchange, like a building where people are buying and selling. <laughs> no, not at all. So what it was was, and Michael Lee Chin was talking about it too, the banker. He was saying basically there was a consortium of all the banks in Jamaica that have lent the government all this money. They all came together and they agreed basically government will cut you a deal. You don't owe us as much as you used to. I see. So that's the debt exchange. We we used to charge you a lot of interest. We're going to exchange that for a different kind of debt where we charge you less interest. Right, exactly. So basically, they all agreed that the Jamaican government used to owe an average of 19% on all their debt, and now they're going to knock it down to an average of 12%. And that would save the government of Jamaica about 40 billion Jamaican dollars annually. How much is that in U.S. dollars? It's about a half a billion U.S. So, I mean, you know, for a country to make a size, that is nothing to sneeze at. That's a lot for the banks, though. Right. They took a huge, huge hit. And that is the reason that Michael Lee Chin, again, who owns one of the largest banks in Jamaica, that's the reason he thought this would never happen. Had you asked me uh, two months ago whether this would have been possible, I'd have said no. Uh, it would was never. It wouldn't have been possible. And you, you own a majority stake in the bank that we're sitting in, for example. So you, your bank owned some of this Jamaican debt, right? We are the largest uh, lender to the Jamaican government. So our hit was the largest. <laughs> it, is in the, it is in the interest of nation building long term. So the idea here is that if the government doesn't need to pay so much in interest, it can do other more productive things with the money that it's taking in. Like it could spend some of that money to try to help people like Wayne register their businesses and get recognized. Or it could spend the money on something that Michael really wants the government to spend money on, crime. Jamaica has a really high crime rate. And Michael thinks if you just get that under control, you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of new businesses starting up and everything like that. And in fact, Michael has a ton of ideas of like new businesses that he wants to do in Jamaica. Actually, you want to hear my favorite one? Yeah. Okay, so Jamaicans are always saying, we're very successful, but just not in Jamaica. We have to leave Jamaica to become successful. And a case in point is, a lot of Jamaican nurses get trained in Jamaica and then immigrate to other countries to work. And so if you go to the hospitals in New York, for example, a lot of the nursing staff is Jamaican. So here's Michael's idea. What if you took these two things that Jamaica has, healthcare professionals and natural beauty, and you just combine them? Health tourism, my friend. Uh, North Americans, aging population, they're spending uh, hundreds of millions going to India and Indonesia for orthopedic uh, surgery. Why not come to Jamaica? Making a hop to Jamaica, having their cataracts removed or their hip replaced, and then renting a villa to recuperate. Uh, That way, you can see the country now will be able to employ doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, and gardeners, whereby with our current tourism business, we're only able to employ a lower echelon type worker. Usually when they say health tourism, they mean just someone traveling to another country to get an operation done. They don't mean like get an operation done and then go to the beach, like the tourism part. That's the whole value add, man. That's the whole point. And I suppose also part of the idea of the debt exchange is that it would make the banks look for other places to loan their money. They're loaning less of it to the government now or they're more wary of that. And maybe they'll work harder to go out and find people like Wayne who need smaller loans. In Riverton. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the hope. 
All right. I think that does it for us today. Let us know what you think. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. And be sure to check out the blog to see a photo with me on the top of a bank with a billionaire. Also, a really great uh, video that everybody should see. Uh, that's all up at npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. Word of life, but it's the where I can find you love for life. Is that where I can find you love that is divine? Is that where I can find you love for life? Is there a place? Is there a time? I've been looking all of my life. I see my people fighting, my people do the right.